Um, good morning, friends. There's, you know, a lot of people sick, I've heard. So I know we're, we're missing, I'm going to set that there. We're missing people that we normally see every day. Not every day. You know what I mean. Not every day. Sorry, Maria. I misspoke. Accuracy matters. <laughs> well, sisters and brothers, yes, good morning. It is good to be with you here again today. Uh, my name is Christy. I have the sermon series right now, uh, Rabbi Named Jesus Today is our second um, in that series. And I just want to stop for a second and acknowledge what a beautiful day it is. <laughs> like, have you missed the sunshine as much as I have? <laughs> um, it's a lot. I grew up in California, so I like miss the sunshine a lot. I literally, on my way walking in, I just kind of stood in the sun for a minute and just did this. And then I was like, okay, I look crazy. So then I had to come in. But it's just so good to have the sun on our faces, you know? So what a beautiful day. And so whether you're joining us here today in the building or online, it's a good day to be together. Beautiful, beautiful day. Um, so yes, so this is second in the series. Next week will be the final in the series, A Rabbi Named Jesus. So last week, I introduced the topic um, by sharing with you a theological belief that's called replacement theology um, or supersessionism is sometimes the name. So supersessionism is a conjugation of the word supersede, right? So the way that your iPhone 11 or whatever the new one is, I have an Android, I don't know. So whatever, you know, whatever new, I know, whatever new iPhone there is has superseded the old, right? You get me. Um, so I didn't use those terms last week, but that is what I was describing to you, is this ideology that the Christian church replaced the Jews as God's chosen people and that God's eternal covenant with the Jews was, well, not eternal. So we briefly touched on the harm that this theology has wrought and looked at how Jesus's Jewishness was downplayed, like even up to including our modern English translations, you know? And I just, I wanted to start off too by acknowledging how shocking some of that may have been. It really was for me when I was first learning these things because I didn't grow up learning about any of this and I grew up in the church. So that might be part of your story too, having grown up, we'll let the motorcycle go by. It's real loud, we hear you, good morning. Um, so having grown up in the church, I don't know if that's your story or not, right? But I was like really shocked. Like how did I grow up around all of this and never be taught any of this really critical information, I felt like. So as I said, though, we here are a community of Jesus followers who are seeking to know better and do better, right? To loosely quote Miss Maya Angelou. And I know that we are people who want the global human community to flourish. Right? And caring for those who are different from us is a critical piece of that. So learning about our shared origins works towards the prevention of anti-Semitism. And as I reviewed last week, when the Jewishness of Jesus was diminished, it very easily opened up avenues of hatred. And so to again quote Rabbi Evan Moffick from last week to this, learning about Judaism, he said, changes the way Christians read the Bible and the meaning they see in prayers. It helps us understand more about what the Torah meant to Jesus. And I love that, thinking about what the Torah meant to Jesus. This reminder that studying our Old Testament is a chance to study the same scriptures that Jesus studied, right? To fall in love with the stories and the words that Jesus loved. Jesus loved the Torah and Jesus loved the Jewish people. 
And stepping into this educational undertaking is a massive task. <laughs> you know, I recognize that, but I think it's really necessary. And I know perhaps you're feeling a little overwhelmed by how much there is to learn, and I totally get it. Putting together this sermon series has been like one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, certainly the most challenging thing within my time as a seminary student. And it's partly because I want to make sure to get it right. You know what I mean? I don't want to misrepresent anybody on either side at any course in history, like throughout any time. Um, but then it's also partly been challenging because I do see how much there is to learn and then how much there is to unlearn. As Christians, we've been handed some narratives about the Jews that are just wrong. And now you may be thinking, like what? But I could not possibly get into all of it. Um, again, it's a massive undertaking. I haven't even found the bottom yet, so to speak, right? Like it's just there's so much to read and learn and know. But each long journey begins with a first earnest step. And that's kind of the way I'm viewing this series together. It's like our first earnest step together. So today's sermon is focusing on rabbi. What was a rabbi? What kind of rabbi was Jesus? So this morning we'll start with a broad sketch of how a Jewish boy would have grown up during Jesus's time and in the same region. And now there's no written record from this exact time period, but there does exist a description of life within something called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the collected thoughts of rabbis, right? They began teaching these oral teachings centuries before Jesus' time. And they were short teachings on every area of Jewish law. And the Mishnah existed then as just an oral tradition until 189 AD or CE, depending on who you are, I guess. Um, so 189 is when they began to compile it all into a written work. In the Mishnah, it describes the early life of a Jewish boy in this way. At five years old, one is fit for the scripture. At 10 years, the Mishnah. At 13, for the fulfilling of the commandments. At 15, the Talmud. At 18, the bride chamber. At 20, pursuing a vocation. At 30, for authority. So most scholars believe that all Jewish children of the time went to school, boys and girls, which might be surprising. Again, the narratives we were handed down, boys and girls went to school together, learning Torah, learning to read and write, and that would all begin at five years old. And large portions of the Torah were memorized. They learned primarily through recitation and repetition, right? memorizing, memorizing. Then at 10, they would be old enough to begin studying the Mishnah, then they moved on to study the Talmud, and at 13 was when the boys participated as an adult in their first Passover in Jerusalem. So I didn't put this in here, but it might be ringing a little bell with the age of 13, as we know uh, about bar mitzvah. We've heard of that, bar mitzvah and bar mitzvah. So th the scholars believe that that was kind of the precursor to the bar mitzvah. This, at 13 was the age they were considered adults to participate in the Passover at Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. So the girls, though, at some point here around that time would leave school to help with family things while the boys as teens would begin to then learn a trade. And again, memorization of the Torah was essential because the only copy of the Torah was kept at the local synagogue and it was on large scrolls. So personal copies like books and things just weren't even a thing yet. 
If a question arose that required the consultation of the Torah, if you didn't have it memorized, then you had to go to the synagogue to consult the scrolls, right? So I have some pictures here to help us conceptualize what we're talking about with Torah scrolls. There we go. So on the left, you'll see, I've got a picture of scrolls there for you. The entire Torah is written by hand onto sheets of parchment that are sewn together to make one very long scroll. Um, it is kept in a chest within the synagogue or some other such case, um, and that just ensures that it's protected. So that first image there is of one such scroll, and then the second I grabbed from a website for a, I hope it's okay, for a synagogue in New Haven, um, just to give us an idea of size and scale, right? So that man that's holding, that, that is one complete Torah, and when they were gonna carry them somewhere, they would put them into these special cloth sacks, you know, and it's like, very large. So yeah, so just wanted to give us an idea of what we see, or what we're talking about rather when we talk about a Torah scroll. They're very large. So as the Mishnah recorded, marriage then was expected around age 18, and then they would launch into their careers at about 20. And then when the men were 30 years old, they were at an age where they were able to teach others, this age of authority, right? And you may have heard that before, that Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. So another sidebar. You may be thinking to yourself, but wait a minute, what exactly was Torah again? <laughs> and while we're at it, what's the Talmud, the other T word, right? They both start with T. It can feel kind of confusing. Again, non-Jewish, right? We weren't raised with these things as part of our lexicon and the stuff we normally talk about. So um, I do have a slide to help us with some definitions. If you do already know this, you're welcome to rest your eyes for a minute, I guess. You can just... <laughs> so um, the Torah here is the law. So that was the Torah. So it wasn't the entire Hebrew Bible that was on that scroll. It's a lot of stuff still, the first five books, right? And they called this the law or the law of Moses. It's sometimes referred to. It's the first five books of the Hebrew and our Christian Bible. And those are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that's Torah. The Talmud, the word in Hebrew is, means learning, right? It's the word for learning. And it is many, many, many volumes worth of collected rabbinic commentaries, traditions, and laws, and this contains the Mishnah. Okay, so those are those two. I added one here that I haven't said yet, just to kind of round out our knowledge. You know, the Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, and so the entire Hebrew Bible together is called Tanakh. And it's actually an acronym. Um, so TNK is the acronym there. So it's using the Hebrew words for law, prophets, and writings. And they're in those sections too, right? First is the law, then the prophets, then the writings. That's how it's designated. Um, and so those Hebrew words are Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. And then I have at the end, TNK, as you can see. All right? Okay, you still with me? I know, it's a lot of information. But there's another little definition moment we have to have, <laughs> which is the very term rabbi, actually, right? Since we, again, non-Jews, us Gentile selves, we're typically not educated in the details of Judaism. And so when we look back into history and try to grasp these concepts of things that we're learning about, we usually default to trying to set it within a context that we understand, right? We try to find a correlation to help it make sense to us. So when we see Jesus being called a rabbi, it can be pretty normal to think that a rabbi must have been sort of like our pastors. They teach, 
they advise, they admonish, they shepherd, and yet rabbis were not at all religious figures or spiritual authorities. They were not priests. Oh, right, rabbis and priests are two totally different things. This was new for me too. Jewish priests are strictly from the familial line of Aaron, Moses' brother. And so a first, for a, sorry, words, for a person to be called a rabbi meant that their community had recognized them as an expert in the law and as a sage. At Jesus' time, there was not yet any kind of process or formal ordination regulation or anything to make a person a rabbi. That didn't happen for the 200 years or so. So it was just the community recognizing this person is an expert in Torah. So to quote a Jewish scholar, priests are products of nature. <laughs> Rabbis are products of decision and declaration. Thought that was pretty cool. Priests are products of nature. <laughs> so in Christianity, we actually don't have something that is like a one-to-one -to, -one to Jewish priests, right? We don't have any familial lineage of religious authority figures. And a first century rabbi, um, if I can be permitted a little bit of latitude, a first century rabbi sounded a little bit more to me almost like our modern day professors, you know? Um, okay, so hopefully, it's not an exact correlation, but hopefully it's helping to kind of help you keep things straight in your mind. <laughs> um, so now that we have some definitions in hand, let's look at what a rabbi did, right? So they were a teacher, we've talked about that. The word itself means master. They held no special religious authority, although some, the best and most advanced, did make judgments on legal issues. They always had followers or disciples, and surprisingly, they had other jobs. At that time, you were not permitted to pay a rabbi for their rabbiing, right? For the teaching, for, for being the rabbi, and, and there was no official process yet. It wasn't yet a job, so it wasn't something that was paid. So they had to have some other kind of part-time trade or profession to help support themselves, right? They were expected to travel and teach. They were expected to spend time in private homes as well as the local synagogues. And even the teaching tool that is most commonly associated with Jesus, parables, they were commonly a teaching device throughout the ancient world. Although Jesus' parables continue to be dissected and pondered by new waves of scholars, his parables are viewed, like currently viewed, as supreme literary creations, to quote one of those parable scholars. And now it's time for the video. <laughs> His parables were not always easy for first century listeners to decipher either. I have a little clip from the show. What does you are the salt of the earth even mean? I'm not good at metaphor. Salt preserves meat from corruption. It slows its decay. I want my followers to be a people who hold back the evil of the world. Salt also enhances the flavor of things. I want my followers to renew the world and be part of its redemption. Salt can also be mixed with honey and rubbed on the skin for maladies. I want my people to participate in the healing of the world, not its destruction. Then why not just say that? <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. My favorite part is Jesus laughing. <laughs> like, oh, oh, Matthew. <laughs> 
So <laughs> that was from a show called The Chosen. You may have recognized it. I know it's, it's a little bit obscure to some, and then to others, they've been watching it since day one. Um, but that is kind of an imagined scenario of Jesus putting together and actually going through the process of writing the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is a little bit surprising for me to think about, just to be honest with you, because reading my Bible growing up and all of these things, I just kind of imagined Jesus was fully God and fully human, so when he stepped onto a rock to preach to someone, things just happened, and it was amazing. And I don't know, so this was interesting to think about Jesus putting a sermon together and workshopping it with Matthew, who was permitted his opinions then, and to question it, you know? So yes, yeah, so the, the parables, and we know too from our scriptural record, people questioned his parables, and, and people walked away from hearing parables confused. And so his parables really are um, this, what are that, uh, supreme literary creations, right? <laughs> All right, so we'll talk a little bit more about parables then in a moment, but right now what I want to be really clear about is that Jesus met the cultural expectations of a rabbi. And you may have been already thinking this as I was talking about what was expected of a rabbi, but let's run through the list real quickly together, right? Was he a teacher? Check. Not a priest? Check. Sometimes did he make legal judgments? Yes, right? We have some records of people, or in the gospel, it's recorded that people would um, like try to kind of trip him up with legal questions, right? So it wasn't necessarily a, a judgment you know, in real life, but it was someone bringing him this question, this hypothetical thing to try to trip him up. And each time he was thrown one of these curveballs, he seems to perform perfectly. Did he have followers? Check. Did he have another job? Yes, <laughs> Jesus was a carpenter, we know, and he went fishing with his disciples. We know there were other things going on. Did he travel and teach? Check. Right, he used the parables, where do you know that? So the image then that is sometimes put forth of hippie, anti-establishment Jesus doesn't sound completely true, right? In fact, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of ways that Jesus was very establishment. <laughs> He grew up, by all accounts, amidst the same cultural norms that every other Jewish boy did. If we review the gospel accounts for evidence of little boy Jesus, though, it's pretty slim. Mark's account starts right off with John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. John's gospel starts actually with pre-creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John jumps right to baptism, John the Baptist. Matthew and Luke provide some information about the pre-ministry years of his life, both including a birth story and stating that the family ended up settling in Nazareth, which is a city in the region of Galilee. But then Matthew's gospel skips on right ahead to John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. Luke's gospel is the only one that gives us some extra little insights into the information of his life, his earlier years. There's a record of Jesus' circumcision at eight days old, per the custom, the presentation of infant Jesus in the temple, and then there's a memorable little story about 12-year-old Jesus being accidentally left behind at the temple in Jerusalem when the family had gone there for Passover. I imagine like the caravan had to have been very large, right, for Jesus to be left behind that way. It took a whole day before they even realized that he wasn't with them. And it sounds like a familiar plot, though, doesn't it? <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> anyway, 
<laughs> so we also have in Luke's account this excellent description of tween-aged Jesus remaining in the temple then for days and sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And Luke says, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And if you remember, that tween-age time, they weren't really into their serious studies yet. They were still on their way, right? But so for all the older people to be really amazed at him is pretty significant. And something else I want to point out, in that same chapter, it's Luke chapter 2, Luke says, Jesus grew in strength, in stature, was filled with faith, and had the favor of God and the favor of men. And the favor of men. Well, that means he was growing up per the customs, right? And he was probably respectful, studious, kind, religious. Sounds like Jesus was a good kid. He grew up meeting cultural expectations, probably even excelling at them, I think I can safely suggest. So all right, time for a little more additional historical context. <laughs> Jews in the region of Israel before Jesus's time, they lived under Greek rule for a few centuries, and then the Romans conquered the Greeks, putting the Jews under Roman rule. And that lasted well into the first century, right? So first the Greeks, then the Romans. And Jesus was born under that Roman rule. And we know that cultures, neighboring cultures or ruling cultures, are always going to have an influence on each other. Like it's just the way culture works. There's evidence in Jewish writings from the time that have survived that show us that Greek philosophy, the teachings and thoughts specifically of people like Aristotle, that that was really prevalent during this time. I, you know, think of our culture now, right? In this country, think about the influence sort of back and forth between capitalist, individualistic culture, right? The influence that has on our Christianity, the influence that Christianity has had on culture. Everything kind of rubs off on everything else, right? And it seems to me that Jesus might have some parables for us these days too, right? To help us sweep away the influence of culture for the purpose of a clearer view of God's kingdom. But we have to remember, God chose that moment in time, right? This particular moment in time for the incarnation. God chose the rabbi-disciple system for the incarnate ministry time of Jesus the Son and Jesus behaved with respect for the system and love for the law. Jesus loved the Torah. So yes, he was countercultural, but not necessarily against Judaism. He was not correcting Judaism as one of those prevalent Christian narratives has taught us. I think that Jesus was trying to clear away the cultural influence that the Greco-Roman world had had on Judaism. Now here's a broad for instance for you. Aristotle taught that women were not capable of true wisdom and that they were not trustworthy sources. Sounds like a great guy. <laughs> Jewish culture of the first century had started to diminish women a bit. Now, I'm not saying at all that it was a misogynistic culture, but women were not permitted to discuss the law in the way the men were, and they were not supposed to talk with men out in public. There were some religious Jewish men who would go so far as to walk around with their eyes closed in public if there happened to be women around. 
It's a lot. The diminishing of women, though, is not something we find in the Tanakh. Like, think about that. There are women who are heralded as heroes. A couple come to mind, Ruth and Esther, they have their own books, you know? Like, so there's, there's like, this just wasn't the way it was originally. Um, in Proverbs, wisdom itself is personified as a woman. Ha, Aristotle. Okay, so this is where I see possible influence then from the Greco-Roman culture and where we have Jesus pushing back against that culture. His countercultural behavior was very often an opposite to beliefs that had spilled into Jewish culture from Greco-Roman thinking. Again, Jesus said it himself, and we read it last week in Matthew 5, 17, 18. He did not come to abolish the law, he said, but to fulfill it. And fulfilling it also meant interpreting it correctly, as a rabbi should, right? Interpreting it correctly for those who would listen and follow. And one of these primary features of Jesus' interpretation of the law was to stress the posture of the heart in addition to the action of the body. That's a lot of what he was saying in the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at briefly last week, if you remember. Those sections in chapter 5 with all the antithetical sayings, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is quoting the law of Moses, as a rabbi would, and then his interpretation is to declare that God desires the right attitude of heart in addition to the right behavior towards one another. And now actually, this is an example of how Jesus did not fit the expectation for every rabbi. He taught with authority that was rare within the rabbinic community. He didn't just repeat previous interpretations as he traveled around teaching. That was what was common. They just repeat everything they were learning from the Mishnah, right? He provided his own interpretation. And Jesus was also expanding access to God and elevating the ones whose society had diminished. And it was in that way, again, that he was countercultural within Jewish culture, though still not saying the law was obsolete or wrong. But Jesus was fulfilling the call from the prophetic writings to bring all of Israel to repentance and in the right relationship with the Lord. He was declaring that all who seek the Lord will find God. He was pushing back against the corruption of the political atmosphere that concentrated wealth and excluded the impoverished masses. He called for equity through community sacrifice. And he declared that the kingdom was expansive enough to shelter all. Consider the parable of the mustard seed that grows into the largest of all shrubs, big enough for all the birds of the air to nest in it. And this was the posture of the kingdom of God that Jesus kept insisting upon. God's kingdom, he said over and over again, is spacious enough for all to find shelter and flourishing within. The expansion was continually preached in parable form. Consider again another one, the Good Samaritan parable, which held up a Samaritan, the enemy of the Jewish people, as a righteous hero of the story. The Samaritan was the one who followed God's command to love others as oneself. And that's Leviticus 19. That's the Torah. And this would have been a huge shock to the listeners in Jesus' time, though. The fact that the one who was following the law was actually their enemy. 
And it was in this way that we see Jesus being countercultural within Judaism. He used their typical story devices and then threw in a plot twist to remind them of the correct interpretation of the Torah. Brush away the cobwebs of influence from surrounding nations, he was saying. And remember to love the foreigner among you as you love yourself. The kingdom is expansive. And he found new ways to remind people that God's law was also about loving inclusion. He dined with sinners, frequently. He showed true hospitality to the ones that the larger society had rejected. He welcomed women to not only travel among his disciple group, but to sit at his feet and converse about the law. He welcomed Mary, Martha's sister, into a space that was typically reserved just for men sitting at the feet of the rabbi talking about law. That was a normal thing to do, but it was just a space for men. But Jesus said no. Mary wanted to be there, and she was welcome. In John chapter 4, Jesus speaks with a Samaritan woman out in public in the middle of the day. And not only was Jesus breaking cultural protocol then by speaking with the enemy of the Jews, the Samaritans, he was also breaking cultural protocol by speaking with an unaccompanied woman in public. And... They were talking about prophecies from scripture. Piles upon piles of, oh. <laughs> so we see him choose to love the woman also in Matthew 9. We touched on this briefly last week. This woman in Matthew 9 who's been bleeding for 12 years and she's healed when she reaches out and touches, remember, the tassels, right? The tassels on the corners of Jesus' garment. Now, it is often assumed that this was some sort of, and I'm going to use some words here, Study yourselves. It was assumed this was some sort of abnormal menstruation, but the original Greek texts are not explicitly clear, which means that we cannot say for certain how this particular encounter informs Jesus' views of purity laws. You with me? That's how that's often taught. It's often taught within that scope. But truthfully, there's actually not enough clarity in our texts to really tell us that part. What we can say for certain, though, is that Jesus was not afraid of her the way that Aristotle would have been. Aristotle, who thought that a normally menstruating woman could dim a mirror just by looking into it. And remember, I mean, he's, he was held up as a hero, right? Like, his, it wasn't just like this one guy. It was like, no, most of Greek philosophy was just defined by his thoughts. Um, so menstruation and postpartum bleeding were noxious to Greco-Roman writers. Not just the one guy, lots of them. Now, we cannot say, again, with any sense of certainty, if this particular belief had, in fact, permeated first century Jewish culture. But if it had, even a little bit, consider the impact of a woman who would have been ill for so long with something that I imagine was nearly impossible to really hide. Imagine the impact of Jesus looking her in the eyes and commending her for her faith. Even if the Greco-Roman perspective had not influenced Jewish culture at all, it is still quite a story of Jesus honoring the suffering and personhood of someone, a woman. He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Inclusion and blessing are found here in the loving, expansive kingdom of God. So I have one more way 
that Rabbi Jesus behaved out of norm, and that was by calling his own disciples. Now, I I didn't mention this earlier because I was saving it for last, but the usual practice during this time was for disciples, for the students, to choose their own rabbi. That's how it worked. And so this is one way that Jesus went completely against what was expected. Rabbi Jesus called his own disciples. He called his followers. So, but think about this with me. He chose people who were already working in a trade. Think about the ones you know of. They were called out of situations where some of them were actually doing their job right then in that moment. (laughs) So these were maybe men who couldn't hack it in the typical rabbinical training. Maybe they'd tried and like washed out. We don't know for sure any of the details, right? But what we do know for sure is that they were not already following a rabbi. For whatever reason, they had gone the trade route with their adult lives. When it came time to differentiate into trades and or choose a rabbi, they just went with a trade. And they weren't born into an elite lineage either, right? None of these guys were priests. So then here's where Jesus meets expectation again. Part of what rabbis would do is send out their disciples to then gather their own disciples. After a rabbi felt that his disciples had learned enough and were ready, they were sent out to make disciples. I hope this sounds familiar. It's the so-called Great Commission, right? At the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, Jesus tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. To wrap up then, what have we learned today? (laughs) Jesus grew up pretty normally, it seems living in such a way that he earned the title of master, rabbi. He usually met the cultural expectations for a rabbi, though he chose his own disciples, which was completely backwards. His preaching reminded his fellow Jews of the wideness of God's mercy and the inclusive nature of God's kingdom. The big picture of the Torah he kept insisting was love, And it was in this way that he was truly countercultural, encouraging his followers to brush away the influence of the world's culture, return to the purity of their first love, turn their hearts back towards the Lord. And I think this continues to be Rabbi Jesus' call, right? Jesus has met us. Jesus has called us. And Jesus will continue to be with us as we follow him out into the world. Yeah. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much for this day, for the sunshine, for each other, for this community where we are safe to ask questions, dig in together and learn 
Lord, I pray that as we go throughout our week, we would recognize you out there. In our own hearts, I pray that we would recognize the work that you're doing within us, but also out amongst those that we meet. I pray that our our ears and our eyes and our heart, Holy Spirit, would be attuned to your presence out there, to what you're doing, where your grace exists, where your mercy is at work so that we can join in. Show us, Lord, where we can join in the work of your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. We ask for more of your presence, Holy Spirit. Help us to to hear you when you speak. We thank you so much, God, for calling to us, for grafting Gentiles into your family. Thank you for your love, Lord. Let me pray all this in your name. Amen.